All right, so glad you could join us. Uh, welcome to Labrie. We have a small bubble here. Uh, I think this is going to be an interesting evening talking about one of my favorite topics, sports. Uh, I don't know if you really know that I love sports. I remember when Liz began working with us, and one day she walked in on me, one day, watching sports. <laughs> and you should have seen her face. It looked, her face looked as if I was watching a dirty movie. All her world came crumbling down <laughs> on what she thought of me. And I have not disappointed her. Uh, I have just kept lowering the bar every day. Um, and occasionally we have guests who have come who have been heavily involved in sports. Uh, even at higher levels, and then even one of our colleagues, Dick Kies, uh, the director or the former director of Boston Libri, the South World Libri, was a rower, and he almost made the Olympic team. However, we have also seen that many do not see sports or competition as a part of the Christian worldview. Uh, they either see sports as something less important than missions or prayer, uh, maybe a waste of time. Others may consider that sports is all right if you just want to have some leisure, but it's not something that should be considered with any kind of seriousness. Um, I would love to address this myself as a, as a Christian apologist, um, as a theologian, and as a fan of sports, but I think it seems better to have someone, a person whose life has been involved in sports one way or another as a Christian. So I'm thankful to have Donna Hornerbrook here with us. Um, what we'll do tonight is have a conversation in front of you all. I've had numerous conversations with Donna uh, about her life in sports, about her life as a Christian. Uh, she has a lot of wisdom and a lot of insight. I thought we could uh, do that in front of her adoring fans, of our adoring fans. Um, please hold your applause until later. Um, after we have this interview, we'll open it up to the floor to anyone who has questions, who wants to ask questions of Donna or me. Uh, but before you begin, or before we begin, I'd like you to know a bit about Donna's credentials. Uh, just so you know that I'm not inviting someone who does weekend ultimate and has been a part of a city league. I want you to know that Donna is the real deal, um, a real athlete. And so to quote from PEI's website, so that's Prince Edward Island um, Hall of Fame website, to which Donna was inducted as a player in 2010, Donna Phillips Hornerbrook of Charlottetown has enjoyed an excellent field hockey career, not only as an outstanding player, but as a very successful coach. Um, that's not an overstatement. I'm going to read you some accomplishments. I couldn't read them all due to time. But um, I'm going to read a little bit. <clears throat> Hornerbrook dominated island field hockey, both at the high school and provincial level. I didn't write that. <laughs> I thought you submitted it. Yeah. <laughs> no, okay. But it was when she went to University of New Brunswick and the coaching of the legendary Joyce Slip, who we all know, that her career took off. You know about Joyce Slip, right? A natural goal scorer, she scored an AUS record 73 goals 
and was all-conference five times, as well as CIAU Tournament All-Star on four occasions. What does AUS mean? Atlantic University Sport. That's Atlantic right. University Sport and CIAU. Canadian Intercollegiate Athletic Union. It's changed Canadian now. Intercollegiate so Athletic. Okay. Yeah. In 1979, Donner received her national card and enjoyed a successful period with Team Canada, highlights of which included a bronze medal at the European Indoor Championships in 1981, where she scored three times against England, huzzah, and fifth place at the World Cup in Argentina. In recognition of her achievements, she was twice the sport PEI Senior Female Athlete of the Year, and the 1981 Lieutenant Governor's Award winner for Most Outstanding Island Athlete. She also played on the 1986 Canadian National Championship British Columbia team. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Hornerbrook's coaching career has been equally successful. She coached New Brunswick to a Canada Games gold medal in 1989. And in five years at University of New Brunswick, the team never lost a conference game winning two silvers at the national championships. She was named both CIAU and New Brunswick Coach of the Year in 1990. Donna has since enjoyed great success in the United States at Houghton College, Houghton, sorry, <laughs> Houghton College, and at Cornell University of the Ivy League in Ithaca, New York, a recognized NCAA Division I school, so that's the top tier university. She is one of the most highly rated and respected field, ho field hockey coaches throughout North America. Definitely didn't write that. <laughs> <laughs> if that's not enough, there's a few excerpts from um, Houghton University where she was inducted to the Hall of Honor just a few or a couple weeks ago here at Labrie. After nine years, Hornerbrook left Houghton as the winningest coach in Highlander field hockey history, accumulating a career record of 111 wins. 39 losses and four ties. And that team, while not eligible to compete for the NCAA uh, championship, she led her team to have victories over the NCAA champions. From 2004 to 2017, Hornerbrook guided the Cornell University Big Red to an overall record of 129 wins and 101 losses, and an Ivy League record of 54 wins and 44 losses making her the winningest coach in program history in both categories. If you combined all her victories as a coach, they would be 300. She did all this while raising three wonderful daughters. Two. Two. What happened to the third? She <laughs> lost the third <laughs> on the field hockey field. It was a strange story. No. <laughs> Two wonderful daughters. So that's pretty amazing. I'm so glad to be in your presence. I'm glad that part's over with. That we could talk about. Sports. I thought that was your favorite topic. Uh, okay. So I'm really excited about um, getting to talk with Donna about her story and about her thoughts about sports as a Christian. Um, and then afterwards, like I said, we will have time for uh, an open conversation. And I'm sure that you'll have lots of questions because um, we had a conversation recently about sports and it exploded into a long conversation that could have lasted a lot longer. I have a question. Yes. How come the Buffalo Bills pennant's not hanging there? Why do we have a Cowboys pennant? Because a we don't want to profane the oh, sacred okay. space. Okay. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if you can't see, we have the Dallas Cowboys pennant hanging up here, which just makes sense. 
um, to most people. Uh, but one that doesn't make sense is the Boston Bruins, uh, especially in Vancouver, where the Vancouver Canucks lost to the Bruins in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Heartbreak city, but Samuel just wanted the Bruins uh, pennant anyway. Uh, so that's why it's hanging there. It's nostalgic, and so that's something. Okay, so Donna, we're going to have a conversation. Okay. You ready for this? Sure. You have to oh. talk loud. Okay. So can you tell me a bit about your story and how you got involved in sports? So yeah. we heard your credentials, but a bit about your story. Sure. Um, well, you heard I grew up in Prince Edward Island. Um, it was in an era before women's athletics really took off. I mean, uh, if you look at what's happened in U.S. college sport and Canada, all over the world, really, um, women's athletics is, is at a much higher level mm. in terms of recognition and, and funding and all of those type of things. Um, I was a shy kid from PEI who loved to play hockey in the driveway with the boys. Mm. So um, every season, didn't matter what was happening, you know, whatever sport was going on, I was, I was playing. So my sports career really started at a pretty informal level, like, like most people, mm. you know, just outside playing with other kids. Um, but um, I, I started, when I got to high school, I played pretty much every sport. Um, and my two kind of favorites were softball and field hockey. And um, Canada Games is a pretty big deal. And um, I had a chance to play softball or field hockey at Tech. Mm. I chose field hockey because I knew I could play at the college level, but also you get to move, you know, a lot, a lot more of an active game. And I like to run. So, so I chose field hockey and it worked out pretty well for me. Um, and then from there, um, you know, after I finished playing, um, just I, I really wasn't planning on becoming a coach. Um, in fact, I when I kind of retired from sort of the national training, national team level training, I I was done. Uh, but I came up back out to BC, and I, I spent a year here in grad school and got to play with BC and just kind of fell in love with the sport again mm -hmm. um, after kind of a couple of years of not playing at all. It was pretty embarrassing the first month or so. Um, um, when I picked up my stick again, but, um, then I got, went back to New Brunswick and, um, how my coaching career took off is that, um, I, I, I had a chance to coach the Canada games team and I really wasn't sure I wanted to do that, mm. but I felt like I had gained a lot from being an athlete. And I thought, well, here's a chance to, you know, to sort of put something back into it and I'll just do it for a year. And um, one thing led to the other, to another, and I saw the talent and was like, wow, this was like an amazing group of New Brunswick athletes mm -hmm. at the time. And we won the gold medal. It was like, wow. I mean, mm -hmm. it wasn't certainly anything anybody really, you know, expected. I think that the girls, you know, had a belief that they would maybe get a medal, but certainly I don't think they were thinking gold medal. And um, it just kind of opened doors. And I kind of fell in love with the sport again. And it just, one thing kind of led to another. It opened a chance for me to, Go to the University of Brunswick, and then from there, you know, Houghton, and then so mm. it just kind of was a probably a God thing, really, just the way that it all transpired. Yeah, it sounds like you were a pioneer. Uh, you know, if there there wasn't the worldwide spread of female sports, and maybe there was a bit of a boys' club around sports, and maybe it was minor. It sounded that if you were pursuing that and playing, you know whatever hockey or softball on the streets with the boys mm -hmm. that it sounded like you were very much a pioneer but by the time it came to coaching yeah there were a lot more women who had been introduced to the sports that you loved yeah i would say that's i would say that's that's fair um i mean to be to be 
truly, I guess, looking at it, you know, from a, I guess a really um, a perspective of, I did benefit from Title IX, for example, because I, I came What's out. What's Title IX? Title IX is uh, where basically um, female athletics had to have similar benefits to male athletics. It wasn't even just related to athletics. It was just in, in terms of um, males and females in general, but it did benefit. Um, it was legal. It was legal. It was, it was sort of a law. Um, how do I describe this? It was, it was something that transpired in the United States, started in the United States, and the United States in the legal system and just spread, but athletics benefited from it. And college athletics in particular, and so and I, you I benefited kind of, from it. I, I did indirectly, yes, mm -hmm. um, because I think that you know the national team had started to establish itself. But I was fortunate enough to to play, and I certainly wasn't. I, I was I was on the team, but I was I was not one of the best players. I mean, there's an awful lot of really good players in that era. And um, are they in the Hall of Fame? Oh, a number of them, yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. And, um, you know, and I think what's really neat is that um, it was a very highly competitive time for, for Canadian field hockey because we were ranked, you know, mm. as high as like second in the world during that era. Mm. So, you know, that was really cool. Um, so there were some amazing opportunities. But I guess what I'm saying in terms of uh, what women have now is, I mean, the nutritionists, the, 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 the weight train, the facilities. Um, they're all comparable to what the, the males have as well. Okay. And even just athletics, college athletics in general, it's just at a higher level. So it sounds like you like you, you played the game because you love it. And even though there weren't necessarily opportunities, you saw that you had giftings in it and you pursued it. Mm -hmm. And as a player, you just had to focus on playing. Right. But then there was the transition to coaching where you have to think about all these right. bigger issues mm -hmm. of so what was that transition and why, what was that transition from playing yeah. to coaching? That, that was, that was uh, like night and day. I mean, it, it went from sort of this sense of you've got some level of control because, you know, you get to prepare yourself and you get to go and, and um, show up. And you have the confidence of, I want to take the penalty stroke. I want to mm -hmm. be that person to, I'm responsible for the entire group. Mm -hmm. I'm responsible for the preparation of the group. I'm responsible for who's going to be part of the group. Um, how are we going to play? Um, um, how, does our, how do our opponents play? All that homework and preparation that happens behind the scenes that the athletes come in and get, you know, sort of briefed on. That was my responsibility to kind of put that all together. And so, so was it much more stressful as much, a coach? Much more. I mean, I, you know, played in some really great high-profile games, I would say, at the level I was playing at. Uh, and I, I didn't. The, the level of anxiety and stress as a coach, I mean, was so, so much higher. I mean, even just, um, I just remember sitting in my office, you know, I, I, my, my routine was team meeting and then I would go and sort of kill the time while the athletes are getting ready in the locker room. And I'm, I'm down, I'm, you know, I got my Bible open, I'm reading, I'm praying. I mean, that was, I was feeling some stress going into every game. I, I did not feel that as an athlete. Mm. Yeah. So because you have to like, take care of so many people, but, you know what some people don't know about coaching is not just strategizing for the next team, but it's about recruitment. It's about uh, working with uh, NPR. It's working with maybe even donors yeah. or sponsors. Like, yeah. So that must have added to the stress. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I mean, a lot of people are surprised when they say, um, so you coached, what else did you do? <laughs> um, because I think that, you know, coaching was part of what you did in, as a high school teacher or, even at the college level, when I first started in Canada, I was responsible for running a sport club program with a thousand participants on top of coaching. 
Um, but once I got to the Division One level, I mean, it's it's a really professional world, corporate world, and um, probably thirty percent of what I did was coach. Seventy percent of it was preparation and all the things you you mentioned, managing the staff and. Uh, the NCAA is highly regulated as far as rules go and um, the video there's just so much um, mm -hmm. you know that the field hockey was was obviously you know what you see but the underneath the surface and the preparation how many people you had to interact with and and work with as part of the team was, was huge well I think it really speaks to your talent and your success as a player but also in your success as a coach and coaching at different levels and then also at the at the well the one induction that we saw at the Hall of Honor, it's just how your players spoke so well of you, and and I do see that you're a person who's an encourager and who really do, does see the big picture with teams, and so I think that there was a real gifting in how you participated as a player, but also as a coach. And I'm looking forward to asking you some questions about um, how you thought and how you think about playing sports, watching sports, how to think about sports as a Christian. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking forward to that. So I wanna ask you some questions, are you ready? Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> so here's the first pitch. <laughs> um, so it seems that, as far as you're concerned, sports, sports is okay for a Christian, but why do you think that? So I think if you have a worldview that um, that the world is God's and everything in the world is God's, then I think that everything that, you know, all of these things reflect him in some way or another. And so I look at, you know, I look at art and I look at literature and I look at film and I look at, you know, people that succeed at the, at the academic level really highly. You know, I, I just see athletics as another one of those areas. Um, I love the quote from Eric Little, um, where he's, he's um, his wife. The runner from Chariots of Fire. Runner from Chariots of Fire, gold medalist. Who was a real person, yeah. Yeah, a real person. <laughs> uh, you know, he was destined to be a missionary in China. Um, that was kind of what he felt was, was really his life's calling. And um, his sister said to him, like, why are you wasting so much time on sports? Why are you running? Why are you doing all these things? And he said to her, God made me for China. But he also made he also made me fast, mm. and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Mm. And so I love that because I just think that we're mind, soul, body, and spirit. And so, um, you know, God makes some people fast. He makes some people strong. Um, he puts that sort of that that you know some people have that artist heart. <laughs> some people have that sort of that competitive drive that I think is there. Um, and and I think we should all, whatever our area is, be striving for excellence because. Mm. God is all about, you know, he created it all. It's fantastic. It's, it's excellent. And I think sport is just one other area where that sort of falls so in. So you don't think that it takes away from missions and prayer and all that? No, I don't. I think that whatever we're gifted with, whatever that is, I think we are responsible to store those gifts. And I think when we develop those gifts, whatever they are, I think that we do feel his pleasure. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's kind of one of the things that he's, he's called us to do. And I think, yes, there's, there's, there's abuses in every aspect. I mean, you can look at that literature and, and say, well, gee, you know, certain lifestyles or certain aspects of, of some of the most successful um, uh, 
um, talented writers, you know, were not necessarily all that pretty to look at, but in some some level they were respected for their excellence. Mm -hmm. And so I think we all can have different interests and we all have different ways of looking at things. I think sports is one of them and it's not exempt from abuse and from perhaps putting it in a place maybe where it shouldn't belong or whatever. But I think at the, at the most pure sense of it is, is just going out there and testing yourself to, to the best of your ability and just doing what you do and, and what you've been sort of created to do and just enjoying mm -hmm. that. So I think that's a beautiful thing. That's great. You know, Dick Kais talks about, and some people say the problems that people have with sports is the sacred secular divide. And, uh, but the world shouldn't be divided between the sacred and the secular as we often do between missions and prayer and sports and leisure, but uh, there should be divide between uh, God's righteousness and sinfulness. That's how the world should be divided, not between areas of life, but between how we engage them. Um, a little side note that you may not know, Eric Little was um, uh, spent time with the China Inland Mission, which is where Edith Schaefer was born, who started Libri. So, so we have a special love for Eric Little. Uh, little is big in our hearts. You like that? Um, actually, I want to uh, read a quote by a guy named Michael Goheen. And uh, he wrote a, an article called The Creational Goodness of Sports and Competition. And he says, and this is for someone like Liz, we are able to creatively construct imaginary worlds into which we enter for a time. Drama, literature, and poetry are examples. These imaginatively constructed worlds bring us delight, new experiences, and fresh ways of viewing the world. The world of games, sports, and athletics is one way we construct an imaginary world with goals, rules, and obstacles. Entering into this creative world for a time can enrich our lives in various ways. So, um, so that's for you, Liz. So have you converted yet? We've been working on Liz. I just want you to know Donna and I have made a concerted. I, I've made a weak effort, but uh, Donna likes to keep everything at the highest level. And so she's been trying to shape Liz into um, uh, into loving sports. Well, I, I have a comment on that, actually. Okay, I've, yes. I've done a lot. I've had a lot of really hard workouts in my life. <laughs> Liz took me on a bike ride. And I think it was six hours long. I was like, I've never had a six-hour workout in my life. She said, we're just going to go for a little ride. So, so Liz is actually, um, you know, she has an She's high level. She does. She has an appreciation for it that she's been sort of holding out. on. You love sports and didn't even know it. Yeah. Um, I have some athletes that you might be interested in. <laughs> uh, okay, I want to ask you a question. What are some common misperceptions that you have seen for yourself, uh, whether – for Christian athletes or otherwise, but just what misconceptions have you had to deal with? Well, I think there's a few stereotypes out there. I mean, not to limit them just to these, but for sure, um, I believe that sometimes there's a perception that, you, see, you mentioned it, that maybe athletics is <clears throat> is a distraction that keeps us from, you know, real life, mm. which I believe that athletics is like a microcosm of life, and there's mm. a lot of life lessons to be learned from it. Um, that if you're an athlete, that the whole dumb jock thing, that you can't be intelligent and be an athlete. And I, I, I really take offense to that one because I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of uh, 
preparation, creativity, and thought that goes mm -hmm. into preparation to, to compete at a really high level. And um, like just to give you an example, um, like at Cornell, for example, um, which is an Ivy League school and some pretty bright women came to our, our you know, through our program. And um, just to get into Cornell is, is obviously can be a, a challenge, but um, you know, sometimes our kids' scores, our test scores had to be really competitive, obviously, but they weren't necessarily getting a 2400 SAT mm -hmm. or a 1600 on the old system. But our, I was about to say, I, was yeah, like, I wasn't even close to 24. Our, our team's GPA was like, so the average Cornell student was a 2.9, mm -hmm. and our kids were playing sports maybe up to 20 hours a week, mm -hmm. and their GPA was um, like 3.3. Wow. And so that's, that's, that tells you a lot about you know the fact that you can be an athlete and you can be highly intelligent. I think the whole thing of you know women in sport, um, you know that um, perhaps there's a lack of femininity if you're mm -hmm. an athlete. And I think so, you know women are heads to sort of maybe, uh, or that it's for if you look at the old mm -hmm. boys network in the past that perhaps that wasn't something that women do. Mm -hmm. um, yet if you look at the statistics. Um, um, mental health, less depression in student athletes, uh, you know, that people are women's compared to non student yeah. athletes. Well, if you look at, at just girls in general, um, girls who participate in, uh, in sport, not even necessarily at a high level, um, but you know, better mental health, less teenage pregnancy. Um, there's just, there's just, you know, higher, higher, you know, grades. Um, there's just a lot of um, positive mm -hmm. things that transpire that have nothing to do with your performance on the field. Mm -hmm. Just being part of that group and, and enjoying that and the confidence, better body image. Uh, granted, there's some sports that perhaps, you know, you know what they are, that maybe that focuses on the appearance aspect or something. And, and mm -hmm. there's been some some negativity regarding that, but I think in general. So I think mm -hmm. that's that tells you. And then just the whole thing of, um, you know, that, that sports can be um, just rough, tumble, maybe even to a certain extent. A lot of um, you know, like barbaric, um, just kind of counting mm. each other. But then you 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 hear you think about the story of the Tanzania Tanzania uh, runner in uh, 1968 Olympics. Um, he's a marathoner. Um, he is training. You know, he's running at altitude. He's struggling. He, he he has cramps in his legs. He falls down. He, he dislocates his knee. He gets up. He gets treatment. He decides to continue to finish. He arrives at the stadium uh, after the sun's down, and there's still thousands of people. He's the last runner. They're still mm. waiting for him. And the beauty of it is they said mm. to him, like, why did you keep going? Because 25% of that group um, quit. They did not finish the marathon that started it because it was brutal at altitude in Mexico City. Mm. And he said, I didn't, my country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start the race, they, they sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Mm. So there's just a lot of, you know, beauty, I think, in terms of sport. And there's a, there's a real appreciation, even amongst athletes, you, you play hard, but at the end of the, at the, end of the game, you shake hands. Um, you, go, you go to the club, the, you know, the clubhouse after a game in Europe, if you played a game of field hockey, and you, you spend time with your opponents. So, so yeah, so it's not like Neanderthals, just like crushing each other's skulls, but it's civility, beauty, and uh, playing within the rules. Yeah, and loyalty, fidelity, uh, uh, teamwork—all these beautiful things. Right.
Um, that's really wonderful. Um, so, you know, but some Christians would say, okay, I hear you, Donna. Mm -hmm. I think it's really healthy. It's healthy for your body probably to do some exercise. Or if you're at Labrie, you can play some volleyball. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't like when it gets competitive mm -hmm. or people become ambitious. Mm -hmm. uh, that just kind of creates a hatred, a person versus person that's not very loving. What would you say to that person? I would say that there's competition in every aspect of life whether you define it within the realm of sport or you define it um, within the area of excelling in academics or doing a good job on your job so that you continue to have your job or, um, um, you know, it's there. And even if you throw a ball out with little kids, uh, they're going to start to compete because it's just, I think there's something about people that just, we just, Generally, unless we sort of get to a, a defeated, we're trying to be as good as we can be. We're trying to be as good as we can be in art. We're trying to be. So I, I, I definitely feel like if we are, as a believer, you know, um, are doing whatever we're doing, I think we should be doing it with excellence. Mm -hmm. And um, by nature, I think that we do tend to compare ourselves, which isn't always a good thing. But I do think there's a, such a thing as healthy competition that mm. teaches us things that we're going to need to know to be able to survive in life. Yeah. Because we don't always get everything we want. And we sometimes have to delay gratification and we have to work for it. And mm. I think there's a lot of that element happening in, in sport. Yeah, you know, uh, Tom Brady, who you know, mm -hmm. uh, one of the greatest football players, American football players of all time. And uh, he's so competitive that recently he got in trouble because he lost to the two quarterbacks that he faced in the Super Bowl, Nick Foles and Jared Goff. And he lost to those two quarterbacks and, refu and refused to go out after the game as customary to shake the other quarterback's hand, but walked off the field and didn't say, and the other two were just left looking around wondering where Tom Brady was. Right. And so that's where competition can become ugly. When it's so competitive, that can help with the drive, but it can also leave you. Um, uh, but com competition can be good. And I, I want to read a quote again by Michael Goheen. Um, and this is what he says about competition, which really resonates or echoes what you said. To echo your echo. To, elimin to eliminate competition, says Michael Goheen, is to destroy the created nature of sports. Rules of a particular sport create obstacles to prevent the competitor from accomplishing the goal of the game in the most efficient way. The joy comes in creating tactics to overcome those necessary obstacles to accomplish the goal. Like in the game murder. <laughs> Competition involves a team or individuals agreeing to oppose one another, given the stated goals, rules, and obstacles of the game. In other words, rivalry is not at the heart of competition. Cooperation is. I like that. Rivalry is not at the heart of competition. Cooperation is. So you're, you're, you're choosing together to, to um, compete. Um, yeah, he adds that competition is, like a, is a drive like sex. It's a good force but can be easily distorted. And that as we compete against each other, that we shouldn't treat them like barbells as obstacles to overcome but to be treated with dignity, love, and respect. Yeah. So. I like yeah. that. I also just wanted to add something that some people, sometimes people forget that 
we think of competition as being always against other people. Mm. But competition, I believe, like I think there's an internal thing of of just that desire to again do our best. And so it's not even necessarily involving an opponent. Mm. That's good, yeah. Compete against yourself. I grew up playing golf and it was you played by the honor rules. So even if you went off on the golf course, you were competing against your best score. Competing against the course, competing against yourself, and uh, and there was something good about learning perseverance. Um, okay, so I want to go to a slightly different topic, um, and I find it interesting that sports give us metaphors for life, uh, metaphors that we couldn't get elsewhere. Even poets can't come up with the metaphors we need in life. Um, people type, talk about life as a marathon, for instance. Um, even the writers of the Bible use sports analogies. Uh, speaking of the Christian faith, Paul spoke of not wanting to run his race in vain, but to fight the good fight, to finish the race in order to receive a crown. Um, in fact, I want to read one verse uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. And uh, this is leading me to my question for you. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself be disqualified, should be disqualified. I think that's pretty great. Um, that these metaphors help us grasp an aspect of what it means to be alive, um, to equip us with an imagination about how to live life better. And in fact, it gives us a unique insight of what it means to be a Christian and, uh, and how to persevere as a Christian. So this turns me to my question for you. Um, because when we talk, uh, you love to talk to me about certain lessons that sports have taught you um, about life and that you've used in coaching, like the power of honking, um, which is great. I would love for you to explain that, but can you just share a bit about your favorite analogies and metaphors that help us understand life, some unique um, contributions to, to from those metaphors? You mentioned the power of honking, which uh, is really just talking about, you, you look at Canada geese and they're flying and they just constantly, you uh, know, as they're, as they're doing their, their thing across the sky and you'll sometimes see, you know, one will be off by itself, but it's never, one will be back, but they'll always yes. have a partner flying with it. And I just think that we're built for relationship, you mm. know, um, and that encouragement. And I think that even just, you know, in the body of Christ, we're encouraging each other. Mm. Um, Human beings need that, and I, I love that. You know, that's I think sport provides that opportunity. I also love the whole idea of um, it's not how you start; it's how you finish. And I think there's some biblical, you know, principles mm -hmm. about that too, like how we how we start our life, um, the mistakes we make. Um, it, you know, good things that we start great, but we can we can we can fall off, and we mm -hmm. see that a lot. You know, not a lot, but we do see people doing that, like mm -hmm. just dropping out of. of walking a successful life of faith. And, and I think that, um, you know, as I used to, as a coach, you know, everybody would be like, um, 
you ask everybody calls you coach. They're like, coach, how come I, how come I, uh, how come I'm not starting? And starting is a real honor to be selected to go out and represent your team and to hear your name calls over the, mm -hmm. the sound system or whatever. And I, I used to always say, it's really, it's, it's, are you going to be on the field when we're finishing? Because hopefully we're going to be successful. Hopefully you've been doing a good job throughout. And when we're coming down the stretch, hopefully you're one of the people that we can count on. And so I just feel like, you know, even if we have had times in our life where we kind of like fall by the wayside, how we finish is way more important, you know, than how we, how we, um, how we start. But mm -hmm. like that's, that's certainly one of my favorites. And just, mm -hmm. just the whole thing of preparation. Um, I mean, a lot of what you see, Mia Hamm says that, you know, the definition of a champion is when you're bent over, um, you know, exhausted and um, when no one's around. Um, and I just think that a lot of the work that we do as athletes and also I think as Christians, it's, it's like off when nobody's seeing it. And I think that, you know, that's super important to not forget that. And, um, also that we have to equip ourselves with what we need. We don't just show up to a field hockey game without the proper equipment. You know, as a believer, you, you, you can't show up without the proper equipment. You know, it talks about sort of the armor of, armor of God. Um, there's just a lot of a lot of things that I think um, correlate to life, life or successful as a you know successful as an athlete and being successful in our walk of faith. Well, I just think about, about that, that picture of a um, of the athlete in the dark, uh, all by themselves. You know, um, and that's what you said. Mia Hamm, the soccer player, yeah. uh, said is is what a heart of a champion is. Mm -hmm. You know, I that is a unique metaphor. <laughs> that we can apply to life, we can apply to Christian faith, that I just can't imagine, you know, someone cooking in the kitchen in the dark, sweating, no, it doesn't quite work. Mm -hmm. The poet, you know, sweating their brow and having writer's block, it doesn't seem to convey the same kind of perseverance that happens in the dark uh, as sports does. It seems like sports actually gives us uh, a language to, to see life that we wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, yeah. and you, you learn to, you, you learn that humility is going to take you a lot further in sport and in life than it is, mm. you know, than, than pride. You learn how to win. You learn how to lose. You learn how to get back up after you, you know. And just even, I, I call it the two-inch rule. A lot of times it's two inches is the difference between winning and losing. It's, mm. it's, it's not getting back on defense. It's like, oh, I'm okay. This is good enough position. And then getting scored on or, you know, that type of thing. Like just taking compromises, mm. cutting corners. We don't tend to make big compromises we make little ones that eventually mm -hmm. catch up to us i feel like that happens a lot that can happen you know in life and in our spiritual life and and just um even delaying gratification and putting your putting the group ahead of your own needs which in this society right now the way we think so individualistic and it's about me and my fulfillment and all of these things that doesn't work in sport you know when you have a team where people are sacrificing for each other you got a team you have a bunch of individuals working on their own, you have nothing. And so I just think you can just talk a lot because I think That's these great. are all things I think that just relate or relate to life. And you know, one of the most touching things that I saw in your induction to the Hall of Honor at Houghton was this one young woman. She had three little kids. Yeah. And she spoke, she said, Coach, I know I wasn't a good player or the best player. But, um, uh, but I really tried my best. And, and you could just tell that 
your life advice and insight to life really encourage her to play the role that she could play to help the team. Um, can you say a little bit more about her? Yeah, I mean, she, uh, I will never forget her. I mean, you, for, you, you, you know, remember your best players, obviously. Mm -hmm. And even, it, like, just again, just to relate back to sort of the body of Christ, like we sometimes have these roles that are pretty humble roles we're asked to play, and do we do it? to the best of our ability, do we do it with the right attitude because it all fits together for the greater good. And this young woman um, was just the type of person that was always positive, always giving everything she had. Got to play, but very, you know, it would be in specific moments. She wasn't going to be on the field in a big moment, um, but she stuck with it. Mm. And um, I used her so many times as an example because like those are the people that hold it together you know, the, 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 the glue, because the attitude of the people who aren't getting what they want really sets the culture for your team. And I think it sets the culture for your group, whatever your group is. Yeah. And so I always appreciate it, you know, her humility and her dedication, despite not necessarily getting a lot of personal recognition. Mm. I think that's great. Francis Schaefer wrote a book called No Little People, No Little Places, mm, just talking about the controversial, controversial. Uh, that was my southern way of talking. My, the contribution of anyone and that there is no one insignificant in God's economy. Right. That we all play a role right. as we see God weaving a tapestry together. And as we play our each role, then there will be a place of honor for us. Right. Even if we don't score the goals, we're not right. the ones, on the, we're not the headliners. Yeah. But that God uses each of us. Yeah. Which is neat because the Bible's full of all of that and how God doesn't miss that. That's great. Well, I know that we could keep talking about this. I know it's a favorite topic of yours, but um, I want to turn to some larger items that might be of interest to people, sure. might be um, where people are asking their questions more so. Um, to the issue of organized sports and then to sports as an industry or as a spectacle. So I want to talk about um, those things in order. So first, um, you can say, okay, these lessons can be learned not just by individuals, but teamwork and these types of things, but what place do you think are there for organized sports? Are organized sports okay? Is that the natural fruition of playing sports? Yeah, I mean, and again, organized sports, you know, how do we define that? Because organized sports can be as simple as a bunch of kids getting together after school and saying, who's, who's backyard are we going to play in, right? Um, but, you know, youth sport, um, college sport, mm -hmm. all the way up to professional sport. I think that anytime um, something uh, dominates every aspect of our being, uh, mm -hmm. where there's like no balance in our life, um, it can be a negative thing. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think that, you know, there's obviously a lot of, benefits as we've talked about for youth sport, but there can also be abuses of it as well. Like and what? Well, I mean, um, um, there can be situations where perhaps the atmosphere that the coach creates is not a positive one. It can have a detrimental impact on a, on a child. Um, if, if it's not, if, if it's all sports and not paying attention to the academics, the mm -hmm. academic life can, you know, can, can hurt. Um, um, I mean, when you get into the professional level, there's the, you could get into, there can be an idolization of athletes and maybe those athletes aren't the best role models. 
Um, you know, it's a beautiful thing when you see somebody that's excellent, but also a good role model. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's always the pros and the cons. So I guess when we talk about organized sports, I, I like that you were saying that it, it can relate to uh, just kids throwing a game together. Mm-hmm. Um, Samuel and Sarah Beth love being creative and, you know, they play a game called Grounders, which you play on a playground set. Uh, did you ever play that? I never played it, but you know, it, it can be as simple as that. But I guess the question is, what is the organizing principle? Organized to what end? Is it to win no matter what? You know, uh, you think of the Karate Kid. Cobra Kai was about yeah. annihilating. <laughs> Mr. Miyagi was about, you know, uh, to not fight, to to live with dignity. What were you saying? No, I think that's a great question um, because I think that honestly, like I said, we're 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 born to move. You know, we 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 live in a body. And I, I think that we can sort of set the bar so it's all about competitive, high-performance sport. But there's, I think there's something for everybody. You know, there's something to be said for just being um, an active and, and enjoying it. And, and, you know, the whole idea of, you know, picking, picking teams and the worst athlete gets picked last. Like that type of culture creates something that creates this, this fear in people that maybe not want to be an athlete. But yet, like... You can find something you like to do. You can get out and kayak. You can, you know, it doesn't always have to be in those kayak clubs. So maybe you're going to you're going to compete in a kayak club. You're going to go out and not compete. You might compete at a high level as an Olympian, or you might just go out and go out with a bunch of friends um, with an organized activity and, and do that. And you can do that. Soccer. You see hockey going. You know, this guy's 67 years out, 70 years of age out on the ice playing hockey. That's great. Um, I, I think it's sad when we discourage people from, from moving. Mm. It's like one of the things I really appreciated about Cornell is that in order to graduate, not only did you have to do well in the classroom, but you had to go pass a swim test. Mm. Um, you had to uh, take some PE credits. So I think there is a recognition that, um, you know, that there's some, some good in terms of whether it's organized sport or just sport in general at some level that people can enjoy that. So it was organized, as you saw at Cornell, not just toward winning, but it was toward the whole person. Right. Uh, now, were they looking just for specialized players, or were they looking for round, well-rounded people? Uh, how, how did they see in terms of recruitment? So if you're talking about the recruitment of a student-athlete, yeah. um, you definitely – so I think just in terms of looking at – recruiting students at a, at, a, at a school like that. Um, and I think there's a lot of great schools in the U.S. and Canada, all over the world, really. But, you know, I think Cornell is looking specifically, the diversity within the student body was somebody who's excellent in something as opposed to being all around it and everything. Because mm-hmm. we often, you know, it's hard to be great at everything. So, so somebody that brought something unique, whether it was like in the physics area or whether it was... Um, they were an amazing trombone player in their band mm-hmm. or whether they were a really outstanding field hockey player or something of that nature. So they were looking for someone excellent in their field particularly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so uh, they wanted their field hockey players to be particularly excellent in field hockey. Right. But in their time there or, or in your role is that you wanted to round them out in terms of thinking of their whole person, even though the recruitment process was like, okay, we want to find, excellent players but when you're here we also want to take care of you 
right. in a more rounded way. Is that true? Yeah, no, I would say so. Um, and I think the school in general did that. Hopefully a good education environment will do that, you know, anyway. Mm. But I mean, we, we used to, for reading, um, we would have a summer reading and it wasn't all about sport. Okay. And so there would be some discussion, you know, amongst the group and so on and some chatting and, and that sort of thing. Well, do you think sports should even be involved in a university education? That's a great question, because I think a lot of people ask that, and that's certainly something that I've had to encounter, because we've dealt with professors, for example, who didn't appreciate sport. But I think the vast majority did, because, mm. uh, again, getting back to an integrated person, um, and so the majority would support. Now, the last school I worked at was, it was an Ivy League school, and they... Um, they did not offer athletic scholarships. So we were having to compete against schools that did offer athletic scholarship. And the philosophy was that athletics, your, your, your education wasn't going to be tied. You, you played because you wanted to play. You played because you loved it. Whereas other schools, um, you, could, you would get an, academic, or an athletic scholarship. And whether you loved the sport or not, you had to play because that was paying your education mm -hmm. bill. So we could get into a whole, whole discussion on, you know, college athletics, but that was one of the things I did appreciate about the Ivy League. It made it difficult at times to recruit, um, and we lost kids because of, for financial reasons, but we also got a lot of kids that wanted that level. And so it must have also um, protected you a bit instead of trying to recruit anyone and trying to use any means necessary, but yeah. working within a certain uh, – mission statement or certain yeah definitely narrowed you know the the target um audience that that's a relative term though because we still get hundreds of kids each year that we had to sort through to determine who were going to be the maybe five or six people that you would bring into your group there must have been different challenges as a christian particularly as a coach as a recruiter as all these things because when you're a player you can say okay i just need to to um, be mindful of how I behave and how I'm a team player. But as a coach, there must have been new stresses, as you mentioned earlier. But uh, how, did your, how did your Christian faith inform you, help you? Just curious about the relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, whatever we do, I, I, I think it, it, when we, I mean, for me personally, the last couple of years has been a lot. There's been a lot of growth in terms of me just seeking deeper relationship with God personally um, and that's changed a lot about how I see God mm -hmm. um, I, I think that in an ideal world um, our faith is not something we just strap on on Sunday you know get dressed up and go to church on Sunday and that's that's our church day and then we live our life like ideally it's just part of who we are mm -hmm. and and I think that it's you know hopefully you're just Whatever you do, you're, you're, you're trying to remember it's not just about you. And at least that's what I'm trying mm. to think about. And so not necessarily always having conversations about faith, but just trying to honor God with how you live your life to the best of your ability within mm. your human you know, weakness. Yeah, because you can't see the whole picture, but I guess you're just trying to be excellent and being faithful at each moment. Right. Um, Which I think we'll all hopefully you know, yeah. try to do if we call ourselves a believer you know, mm -hmm. in Christ. So um, this leads me to uh, the next thing I want to talk about, because a lot of people, you know, they play individually, and uh, and then they go to university, but then sometimes they make the next step toward professionalism. Sure. 
where they move from being an amateur to being a professional mm -hmm. beyond the financial aspect that an amateur is not paid mm -hmm. supposedly mm -hmm. and a professional is paid uh, what differences do you see between the amateur and the professional and and uh, yeah just how do you see that athlete and what kind of things they have to go through what difference right well I mean um, depending on what what sport you're talking about there's, mm -hmm. there's a big difference I mean um, the visibility uh, in, in, I've spent what I guess 25 years coaching the last 25 years coaching in the US spent the first five years in Canada um, you know there's much more higher visibility um, sports than others and there's a lot that goes along with that um, you know it, it also there's certainly <laughs> make a lot more money as well but um, I would say that um, yeah, maybe you could just sort of direct me on that. I just leave my yeah, so on. just with um, being a professional right. athlete, it's like, yeah, uh, yeah, just what challenges are there? Uh, yeah. Is it a different mindset? Is it just total sacrifice? Because when you're in the university, you're thinking about my studies, my family, yeah. but then when you become a professional, it just yeah. takes on a different level. What is that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think we see that there's a lot more pressure I think there's a lot more distractions. There's a lot, if you go professional, there's a lot more money. Your livelihood is depending on your performance, whereas an amateur is just going to be competing because they love to compete. But certain sports um, maybe don't offer the professional level, so they're still competing. The sacrifices are very similar, um, but perhaps the monetary aspect is not there. And you could, you know, you could even go back into the Olympic movement, which we're all familiar with. Um, there was a transition with the dream team basketball right, team right. Um, which sort of took uh, the Olympic movement from what was previously just an amateur movement to the professional level where the philosophy was I don't doesn't matter the best we want the best athletes in the sport regardless um, so if that was hockey and there's professional NHL players we're gonna include NHL players if that's NBA you know we'll include the NBA players if field hockey which has some people play, play professionally in Europe they get paid mm -hmm. to play but certainly not at that sort of. That's, that the, that's where the league is professionally, is in Europe. Right. So you would see a lot more. Um, you would see, and, and and you know, you see a lot more um, of people just really, you know, they play for the love of the sport, but the dedication is still at an incredibly high level. Um, to some sports, maybe it's a TV thing. Really, I think a lot of the sports where you're there's professional aspect to it is because of TV revenue. Um, mm -hmm. But I think there's definitely, it doesn't probably change the commitment level of the athlete, but it definitely, you know, obviously uh, changes the profile. So it, it seems like, you know, yeah, I mean, this moves us into thinking of sport as a spectacle. Mm -hmm. Because sports has become an industry. Um, in some ways, it's become an idol. Mm -hmm. And some of the way that people interpret sports nowadays isn't ultimate in the side or volleyball or even playing for university. They see it as spectacle. And so then they start saying, oh, that's just about idolatry. That's just about something that's taking away from the view of, of any kind of gospel witness. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is the kind of commercialization uh, that, you, that you see in the sport that detracts. I mean, is that what you think, like, with the Dream Team, does that detract from the love of sport? Does it, does it make it something else? Is, mm -hmm. Uh, are you are you okay with professionalized sports? I mean, 
I appreciate professional sports for sure. When it came to the Olympic movement, I, I love, I'm a purist from that standpoint because I, there's something you said for playing sport, regardless of whether you're being paid for it, just for the love of the sport. And that's not, you know, influencing your level of excellence or commitment. But, um, I mean, sport has a, it clearly has a huge platform and a, a huge profile in, in culture. And you hope that it will be, you know, used in a positive way. But I think it has, it has the, the potential for that, but also this potential, as you said before, for, for abuse. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a beautiful thing. I mean, you know, it's poetry in motion at times when you watch mm-hmm. Michael Jordan playing basketball. It's beautiful. Um, or the Argentinian uh, field hockey player. Yeah, yeah. What's her name? Oh, you're going to get me now. Okay, she's amazing. <laughs> a concussion brain here. Okay. Uh, but, you yeah, know, she's amazing. Yeah, Mara. yeah. Mar- yeah, yes, yeah. Um, and, and, um, yeah, so it's just, you know, whatever that person is and whatever their sport is, it's, it's, you got to appreciate that. And there, yeah, it's, it's there's a poetry there. There's a, a, a drama and um, I think it's, it's a beautiful thing. Mm. Yeah. The professionalized sports has given us um, with all its faults. Uh, it has given us tremendous beauty. I mean, even I love watching NFL American football and I have seen uh, the level from the 60s until now, that the level is so high that even players from the early 2000s say they were they would be unable to play today, mm-hmm. that the level is so high. Right. Um, and so you, you, de- you do see something quite remarkable. There's the skeleton form, but professionalized sports does seem with its focus to be able to really create something special. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> well, I want to tell you a story. Um, about an Ole Miss kicker, uh, University of Mississippi football kicker. And he was a part of our Christian fellowship. And he uh, broke the school record for most made field goals. Uh, And he was interviewed on TV. And as usual, he wanted to thank God and just give God the glory. Well, a couple weeks later, he broke another school record for most missed field goals in a game. And, uh, and so they interviewed him <laughs> wanting to see what he had to say. And he said he wanted to give God the glory, whether he made them or missed them. And I just thought that was a tremendous way of responding. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that, that was a position for him to use it as a platform right. to, to speak of his faith in God. Mm-hmm. However, and you, you mentioned Eric Little, earlier mm-hmm. who who would preach after he ran you see that in chariots of fire but then you have someone like colin kaepernick mm-hmm. who is more controversial mm-hmm. uh, and you have other figures who are sports idols right michael jordan says you know i wish that was never on a wheaties box because you know i wasn't the kind of guy that they wanted to paint me as mm-hmm. you know uh do you think that there that it's that sports that athletes should use their sport as a platform like that's a that's an interesting um question because like you said again use for positive use for negative um when it comes to for example faith um i look at like a guy like um Foles, nick Foles. nick Foles, yeah um we're back to the philadelphia eagles yeah. but now chicago bears right so he he thought his career was over you know, he was fairly highly drafted, thought his career was over. 
um, was ready to pack it in. It's a very strong Christian. Um, it goes to, um, kind of for one last go, goes to Philadelphia Eagles. And the starting quarterback gets injured, and he is finding himself in a Super Bowl and wins the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he, you know, he goes off and signs the free agent. It doesn't go well. He gets a, a really serious injury, and he gets bounced around again. And when I listen to him talk, um, it just flows out of him. Like, I don't think he's going up there and saying, I'm going to use my status as a professional athlete as a platform for sharing my faith. I think he just shares his faith because he shares his mm-hmm. faith. Like, he, it's just who he is. Whether he gets hurt and he's out mm-hmm. for the season, you know, whether he, he signs this big contract and he, then, he, then he kind of, like, falls on his face. It, the consistency is there for him, and whether he wins or whether he loses, he's still mm. he's still walking in, in his, his life of faith. So I I can respect that. Um, I think that there's people who use the platform to promote themselves. I think mm. there's people who use the name of Christ. Um, you know, you see professional athletes, and, and and perhaps their their consistency and their faith walk isn't very isn't very at a real high level and i'm not sure if that sort of is a, is a positive i don't mm. think that's positive thing, actually. Right. um so I, I don't know that people you know grow up and say i want to become a professional i'm, I'm going to become a professional athlete so i'll have a platform but mm. i think that the na- the nature of the status provides mm. a platform and that mm. platform is going to be used one way or the other, and it's just a question of what. And yeah. um, I, I find it encouraging to see an athlete who is consistent in their faith, who it just comes out of them naturally. And in that case, I, I think that's a problem. Yeah, actually thinking about this, it, it um, and we've discussed this at points, but it's interesting that this is a moment where, because Christians sometimes are removed from public discourse, uh, from the public square of ideas. And yet in sports, you have not only, you know, uh, the person who wants to party has a voice, the person who wants to be faithful to his wife or have nine kids like Philip Rivers or um, a faithful Catholic. And then uh, you have people who are all about the money and about fame. And yet there's a place in this platform that, to give uh, to give view of what it means to be a Christian in the midst of all of, the, of these other voices mm-hmm. in a way that where you might not hear it in the political sphere, the right. philosophical sphere, the scientific sphere, but sports seems to have that avenue where the lay person can express their faith in the midst of these other visions of life. That's right. That's right. And I think that there's, you know, sport is a less threatening, you know, for a lot of people There's people would not go into a church. But they would go to a sporting event, and um, they they would maybe have respect for somebody because they're such an excellent athlete, and they might want to know a little bit more about their life, and perhaps that provides an opportunity for that to be shared. Um, Different people might have differing opinions of whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or a manipulative thing or not. I I personally think that, again, if, if somebody just, it's just who they are, and somebody's asking them, like, you know, and they're sharing who they are as a person, and it's, it is consistently who they are as a person, and I think that's a really great opportunity for somebody to be a positive role model for a young athlete or a young person who just maybe enjoys watching the sport. Mm. Yeah, that's great. So uh, before we open, I just have one more question for you, because I know that people have questions for you, I'm sure. 
but this is for you to help me out in my marriage, uh, <laughs> is I want to hear what do you think about watching sports? Um, is there goodness about watching sports? There's a lot of people, this, this answer means a lot for them. It hangs on your <laughs> answer. Right. It's like everything, right? <laughs> everything in moderation, that'll be my answer. Um, but I mean, when you look at all the different places that we can uh, occupy ourselves and look for entertainment and so on, to me, uh, like there's a lot worse places you could spend that time. <laughs> That's a diplomatic answer. <laughs> but um, you're going to politics next. You're right. right. It's a, it's a, it's fun. It's fun to watch. And it's, it's, there's, you know, people watch movies. People enjoy watching sport. Um, it's, it's like, I think, how do you want to spend your time? And I think if, if any, like anything, it can take over your life if you don't keep it. True. Balance. Yes, that's true. And you do see some people who takes over. I saw a guy, we went to a party and it was in honor of my friend who was, uh, quitting his job and going to do something special. And this guy thought it would be a perfect partnership with watching the Tennessee football team play and Tennessee lost to Florida last second and this guy walked around methodically and slowly popping every balloon oh, and, the, and he was just so devastated so angry and just left the party and just left a gloom and the wife just like put on the cure and just turned up the music and, and danced and so you can see where watching sports can be too much but uh, I like to make the argument where watching sports is also not just for dumb jocks it's not just, it's not a desire for pugilism. Um, it's not a desire for Neanderthals just knocking each other around. But I personally see it as Shakespeare in action. Like that you have all these backstories, if you watch it long enough, that you know the stories of each character and each role that they play. And if you don't watch it long enough, you don't. You just see a game where a ball or a puck or um, something is moving back and forth and you have no idea what's going on because you don't know the rules and you don't know the players and you don't know the histories. But if you know all these things in depth, it becomes a very dynamic game. It's like a Shakespeare play that you don't know how it's going to end. Right. And, and even the same characters come together and it could have a different ending. Right. Right. It could be comedy or it could be a tragedy. Right. And so I think watching sports, just to give you the answer that you should have, <laughs> um, is something quite wonderful, but as you said, in moderation. Right, right. And I, I mean, personally, I, you and I have talked about this. I love watching football because there's a break. Yes. And then you have a chance to talk about those stories. And you also have a chance to uh, um, think about, strategize. So there's, like, there's sort of that intellectual exercise of what's going to happen next, yes. which is really fun. Well, great. Well, thanks so much for answering my questions and being here with us. Uh, I just want to open it up to uh, all y'all on if there are any questions that you have. Uh, and if there's any questions in this room, uh, then uh, from within our bubble, do you have questions? But okay, so first we have a question from Julia. I don't have a question. I'm just saying. Oh, statement. I'm okay that. You have the, what you call it, pre-recorded. You can, you record the show so that you can still have a Sunday walk with your family. I think that's important. <laughs> You're willing to go for a walk with your family and then come back and watch the, the Cowboys lose. <laughs> okay, we'll have to deal with that later. But does anyone else have a comment or a question? I would love to 
to hear from you. <laughs> Just unmute yourself if you have it. Yeah, Lisa. Um, I really liked the examples that you gave about um, how it can benefit society or how it's um, like relating it to our life as a Christian in kind of in the same way or comparing that to uh, like literature, authors, art, poetry, kind of like the quote that you gave, Clark. Um, I really like that. Sometimes as a player, I would tell myself I was like being selfish by doing something I love. And how am I, and I, so I was like, there has to be something more worthy that I can do for God than playing sports. So I like those examples that, um, that you gave. Uh, and then I wanted to ask, so I know how um, sports benefits me and I try and see, you know, that, okay, I am taking or I'm giving God pleasure, like Eric Little says, um, but do you have any examples of how sport and your teams um, and games benefited the community that you were, whether that was the university community or like the families of the players, not just the players themselves, but how you kind of saw that in real life. Re yeah, that's my yeah. question. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, 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 it's neat because we're part of a group or a team, um, so I can't, I can't speak obviously for all all teams, um, but but we would do um, like some benefits for um, raising money for cancer research and things like that, where the group would have to come together and, and sort of um, do that. We did a lot of like women in sport things. Uh, we did reading in the community, you know, where our team would go out and read to kids, and, and there's a lot of that type of thing, which I think is also in a sense a team building thing, but hopefully, you know, um, benefits the community. We, we had some people that um, had some challenges, uh, you know, some, young, some young, young people that would be sort of becoming friends with our players and would be at every game. And it was a huge part of their life. And you see that a lot. Like, um, I mean, there's, there's a story, a great story. Wayne Gretzky became amazing friends with um, um, a young man, his last name was Moss, that was with the, that was stayed with the Edmonton Oilers for like three decades. Um, and he just passed away recently, but uh, he was he was in the locker room. He was with those guys all the time. And again, it's just a, the collegiality that comes from being in that environment. It should be fun, and it should be a team and a family atmosphere. And we would have tailgates after all of our home games. Um, all of our parents would be there, and you would really become friends over the time. And that happens in Europe with you know the field hockey clubs where um, you know it's a family it's a family experience that the young the young kids are playing and the, the parents are still playing at their level and everybody's watching so i do think there is something that's sort of a group dynamic that can develop that's really a positive thing it doesn't have anything to do with the performance aspect it has to do with the people that's what i loved about athletics for me field hockey was great i loved field hockey but honestly it was about the people and um just 
sort of becoming a group and, and seeing that group flourish, hopefully, and seeing that group become as good as they could be, um, which hopefully we also would have within the church and also within other organizations we're part of. You know, that's part of life, right? Mm -hmm. Sport just is one way of bringing that out. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. We have a question from Sarah. Um, you said you were done when you had finished playing for the national team. Mm -hmm. Can you explain why you had to fall in love with the game again? Good did question. Your, and did your faith play a role in that transition? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Good question. Oh, wow. Um, so, again, I guess like, there's, there's, there's obviously a, there's a resilience and a perseverance, and we talked about that being one of the things you learned with, with sport. Um, for me personally, I don't think I had the balance in my life. Um, I think that I hope I brought more of that as a coach than I displayed as an athlete. I'll just put it to you that way. Um, you know, coming out of PEI, there was a lot of adversity. Um, I don't think there was too many. I was told, you know, when we Prince Edward Island, you don't stop playing for PEI, you will not make the national team. I was told mm -hmm. that. Um, and and there's just a lot of, you know, there's, there's, you deal with injuries, there's, there's challenges, right? You, you learn to, to fall down and get up and so on. So I think I was really burned out. And um, I really took a break for about three years where I didn't, honestly, I didn't pick up a stick. And I came back out to BC and I connected with people I had played with on the national team, people who had been national team players, and people who were going to be future national team players. And I got to play in the league and, and it was so much fun that it just kind of rebooted my love of sport. And from there, I feel like that energy that I brought back allowed me to kind of enter back into coaching. I really think that was God because the way, honestly, like I, the way things fell together, um, I couldn't have orchestrated it. Like I just think it was just the, the, the plan, you know, I guess I think leave from where how God ordained my life. Um, and so it was a real blessing to come out here and actually get back involved with the game. That's great. Which team did you play for in the ladies league? Huh, played for the Oak Bay ladies. You played for Oak Bay? Yes, yeah. Oak Bay. Yeah, awesome. That was uh, in in the uh, mid 80s? Uh, late 80s. Late 80s, yeah. 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 I, I was just starting out in the league at that point in time. And I was oh. still bouncing around from team to team as they were um, needing goalies to play against you, Vic. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. Well, you uh, you clearly settled because I I heard you had a pretty good career, so that's great. Well, thank you. I I think um I think I played against your team in um, Halifax. Yeah, and I think you might have won. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> we won't get into that though, right? No, no, no. No highlight of my life actually. Highlight of my career actually. Was, National championship yeah. final. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, um, and in fact, the the game against UNB to get to the final, I think, was more of a highlight than the actual final. Yeah, no, that's, personally, that's, yeah, that's great. That's fun. Yeah. Well, that was yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Um, and I I noticed you you mentioned the uh, geese flying in formation, honking. Uh -huh. um, Buzz used that same theme one year um, oh. when I was on the team. Oh, wow, that's great. Great minds to life, huh? Yeah, exactly. I think, did you get that from Buzz or did Buzz get that from you? 
I definitely didn't get it for Buzz, but maybe we. Maybe I think it was the a, original Spygate. Yeah, like, maybe it was a neutral, <laughs> neutral somewhere. But um, yeah. I actually think I, I picked that up somewhere in the, in the U.S. I, I heard one day. Like, that makes sense to me. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, can I ask another question about? Um, faith as a coach because you're in the position of power as a coach mm -hmm. and you can set the tone sure and um did you feel like you had to to uh censor yourself or to make sure that you were careful in how you present it because as an athlete they can an athlete can say whatever you want mm -hmm. mind you i found that if i was open about my christianity i might have just happened to lose my place on the team right no um i i was made to be very uncomfortable as a christian when i was on the national team um and i never said anything i never said right. about my faith and yet i was mocked for it right right so um and not by not by my um fellow athletes mm -hmm. so um I'm wondering as a coach what it was like to um, work in a secular environment from a faith perspective, uh, knowing that you're shaping and influencing lives. Because I had, I had good coaches. Uh, I had an excellent coach at UVic, um, but we did not see eye to eye spiritually at all. <laughs> and, and that at times was very difficult because I was made to feel like I had to do things in order to be part of the team that I disagreed with spiritually. And I was wondering, did you ever have experiences like that? Did you have to navigate that as a player? And how did you make sure that as a coach, you didn't put players in the kinds of positions that I was put in? Um, so just speaking from my personal experience, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't have those same feelings. Um, I, I, I never really sensed that, um, um, or had anybody, you know, challenge me in any of those areas, I would say. Um, and honestly, like, I think my, I've become more outspoken, if you will, in, in my faith, more, more, more bold and saying, you know, I think we, we, we need to be respectful. I think we need to, to be able to answer questions as we're, as we're asked in a way that's you know, that's respectful if people want to kind of understand more about where we're coming from and why we believe what we believe. But mm -hmm. uh, I spent um, nine years at a Christian college called Houghton College. Mm -hmm. And that was at a time actually where I had probably spent six or seven years leading up to that where I questioned matters of faith. I, I did a lot of studying apologetics and so on, which really kind of transitioned my faith journey. Um, and so I, at that, at that university, because of the nature of it being a Christian college, I had a pretty, I had a pretty open relationship with all my players. I mean, I think they were probably looking to, looking to me to be more of a mentor to them in some ways. Um, I think at, at Cornell being a secular school, um, I think again, um, opportunities, obviously I had a lot of private conversations with kids that they'd come up and just want to talk and I would always be willing to talk and, and, and um, but um, by nature, we're in a different environment. It's a professional workplace, and I had to take that into consideration. So I just, I just would live my life the way I live my life, and that sometimes would lead to questions. And um, I think I don't think I, I felt disrespected for my faith. Um, 
I, I just, yeah, I didn't really experience that same, you know, which you're referring to that, uh, that wasn't my personal experience. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah, I think it does. Thank you. I, I, uh, to clarify a little bit, there were, depending on the team, um, I felt respected in, in some areas and in other areas I didn't. Um, and, um, was very surprised uh, by the respect um, that I was given when I left the game, hmm. as opposed as opposed to during. I had no idea. Um, yeah. Now that you've, uh, it sounds like you've transitioned out of coaching. Now, is that correct? Uh, certainly for the time being. Um, I mean, I, at this point, I'm just really asking, asking. Um, God as to like what the next thing would be. Um, definitely feeling like a pull towards some ministry of some sort would be would be awesome. That's really where my heart has been. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I had suffered a couple of concussions, and that was why I ultimately stepped down. I guess at at uh, Cornell. Um, and so I'm not really sure what the next thing is, but I really sort of think coaching just ties into a lot of things because it's it's a sport. Uh, but also, like I said, it's the people and it's working with people and, and there's so many different things we all can do where we have to be able to obviously interact with people. So hopefully some of those skills will, will translate. Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, yeah um, I, I agree because I think I learned more from my coaches about what to do and what not to do than I learned from my teaching program um, <laughs> because I've, I've ended up being a teacher and, and that's a very similar career to coaching. Um, but I was wondering, uh, did you regard your, um, your work, your job as uh, work? And did you regard it as your mission field? Good question. Um, yes, I, I mean, it's funny because you could say you make a living doing something that you might do for free. Because my first, honestly, my first uh, probably three or four years of coaching, I never made, never made a penny. Um, it probably cost me money, right? So I would have probably done it regardless. You know, I, I loved it. And whether I did it on a part-time level, like at the high school where I didn't get paid for the extra work, um, or whether I did it as a professional in, in coach environment, like a college environment, it didn't really change, I guess, how I approached it. Um, so what was the second part of your question? Sorry. Was it a mission field? A mission field. I mean, honestly, um, I just look at it like our whole life is a mission field, really, as a believer, um, whatever we're called to do. Um, just, you know, in our neighborhood, in our family, um, you know, on a team, in a university. I mean, I think we're just to, as a, as a, as a believer, as a Christian, live our life in a way that I hope honors God. Um, whatever that looks like. And I think that he brings people to us um, and we are just to be there to kind of respond to that. Um, I think there's a verse that says, um, you know, if, um, if, if, the, if the Lord doesn't build the house that the laborer labors in vain, I kind of look at it like that. And I think there's so much in my life I did um, as uh, my own efforts, my own ideas, my own thoughts. And I'm hoping uh, I'm mature as, as a Christian that, that that changes and it becomes more me responding than me trying to uh, orchestrate. Mm -hmm. Liz? 
I have a question. Um, so you, you mentioned some of the benefits for the female athletes in particular. Um, and I, I read a book that, that had referred to what you did about um, promiscuity and teen, well, you said teen pregnancy, but just like um, sexual activity among, I think it was high school kids. Mm -hmm. Like the only thing that significantly lowered it was girls' involvement in sports. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that just kind of, I've been thinking about that for a while now, but I was wondering if you could say something about, um, particularly how it affects your, uh, women's relationships with their bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think obviously women are like hypersexualized and objectified in our, our society often. Uh, so, so yeah, negative or positive things that you feel like come out of, um, people's uh, experience, women's experience in sports. Well, I think that, you know, one of the things of just being part of a group, if it's a positive group and you're getting some enjoyment out of it, it shifts the focus off of a lot of things that teenagers are focused on. You know, it just gets you off of social media for one thing, a lot less, hopefully a lot less of that. You have less time for that. Also, like you said, being more in tune with your, with your body and, and the self-esteem aspect is huge because I think a lot of times we will buy messages that are put, put towards us and be less um, strong in our thoughts and our beliefs about ourselves, more swayed if we don't have things that we can anchor on that we have confidence in that we're good at and support support people around us. So I think that's one of the things, depending on the message, that they can come out of that. Um, I also think that um, you learn you're moving your body. Your body is yours. You're not as maybe caught up in the whole. And I I don't for lack of a better term, you know. There's a sorority mentality sometimes that I, I kind of, I, there's some positive things that come out of sororities, but there's also images and, and the whole, like you said, the hypersexualization piece that you see online all the time, everywhere. Mm -hmm. I just think as athletes, you know, you're not striving for that. You're, you're more, I, I, I've always felt the women I, I work with are much more confident in themselves and not having to look to other people to get their identity. <laughs> they have a more secure identity within themselves. Like you don't want to overgeneralize, but that's kind of what I, I've experienced. There's a level of confidence and authority and taking charge of, of themselves that, that, that they have to be able to walk in to be able to be successful on the field. And I think that carries over into life. That's great. And one thing I noticed for myself too, like when I'm, when I'm exercising regularly, you know, it's easier to see my body as, as something that can accomplish things and work with mm -hmm. me rather than just something that's to be judged by people outside of me as like attractive or not or whatever so i think it's it's great to see your body as yeah something that can do more than just sex basically yeah, it belongs to you yeah 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 but also like something that you can enjoy uh in those ways you know um, and it can look different uh, than what's portrayed that that people are trying to aspire to look like when perhaps they're not you know, they're not built that way or they're not even, you know, there's other, there's other positive ways. I think athletics, female athletics, and even like workout videos and so on, like you look at the Twiggy era mm -hmm. back in kind of when I was, you know, growing up versus now what you see and you see there's, there's, it's okay to be athletic looking. It's okay to have some curves. Yeah. And I think that kind of is much more of a healthy approach to, to life than trying to look like those models when they weren't even healthy themselves. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, passing out painting and getting airbrushed and everything else, mm -hmm. it's an impossible uh, thing to try to achieve.
Are there any other questions? I like the lifelong. Like, Julie health. has a question. But I like the lifelong health benefits. Like I see people that were in organized sports finding it easier to like keep going or get out there and do things as adults, even if you know we we have a friend that she gets all of his frustration out. I think he's kind of a pent up guy at times, but he gets all his frustration out just playing hockey. Mm -hmm. With a bunch of guys in the winter, and like I don't think that it's like probably a high level. Of, I don't know. Like they just like to go out there, and so I wish you know I grew up playing music, and I feel like music is wonderful and very useful. But you know, I kind of just I walk. But I'm not <laughs> going to run, go out there and play soccer. But right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Blair. I just have a question, kind of for both of you, but more for Donna. Clark mentioned about that story with the football player saying that, you know, even in 2000s, they couldn't have played uh, to today's level. And how do you see technology change sport with, like, you know, the advancements yeah. in the group? And um, do you think it will just keep progressing sport with the technology, or do you think there can be a cap? Like, we can only go so good. Mm -hmm. Do you think we're having to get the cap of possibility or will we keep seeing records broken and yeah. just kind of the future of sport with the excellence? That's, can a, it, that's a good question. Can this keep always getting better? Right. I, mean, I can just give you my, my opinion, but um, the equipment is huge. I mean, it's, um, if you feel hockey players online will tell us that the equipment's changed a lot. Um, and it's you know the same thing with like golf. I mean, people hit the ball a lot farther in golf than they used to because of the equipment. But the nutrition, the training, the facilities, the coaching, the adaptation—I still think there's there's more room for sure. I think it will continue to. I mean, if you start with the natural product, you know, and then go from there type of thing. But um, yeah, that's that's I, I think there's definitely depending on certain sports are further developed than others because there's always new sports popping up in the Olympics and all kinds of things that you might say, wow, I didn't expect that. I didn't anticipate that. That'd be another conversation for another day is how do we determine what, you know, why are certain sports more popular than others? But, yeah. Yeah. And I would also add just that, like you're talking about the technology. Um, there was, I, I enjoy watching old football games, like the classics. And it's interesting during it's, it's interesting to hear people's comments on these broadcasts from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. And there was a guy that broke the passing touchdown records and passing yardage in 1984. His name was Dan Marino. And uh, it was a game that he was involved in just about six months later a year. And the commentator said what he did last year, because someone said, oh, I wonder if he's going to do that again uh, this year. And this guy said, no, it will never be repeated. I don't think that we'll see anything ever like that again in the history of the sport, which is pretty outlandish because Dan Marino is now like 12th on the list of all-time touchdowns and passing yardage in a season. And three of them were broken last year alone. Uh, that has to do with technology in some ways, but it also has to do with strategy. Uh, so uh, you, with baseball, it's changed just the way they throw it. So you have more strikeouts and more home runs. And a famous pitcher named Goose Gossage, 
said he can't watch the sport anymore because it's so unlike what he used to play because there was a different strategy. So it depends on what we think of how has the sport quote unquote improved or not. I think it will always adjust. It will always adapt to cultural expectations because uh, baseball was hit by um, a strike and uh, you know, there was, it was canceled. Like when hockey was canceled, tickets prices went up the next year. But for baseball, it was a drought for a long time for people even wanting to watch it because it was such a sour note. But then they started seeing that people would watch if there were lots of strikeouts and lots of home runs. And the way they um, juice the balls. Uh, and, and it just makes it really fast. And it, it can be a home run or a strikeout. And so I, I think that there's always going to be adaptation. Does it mean that the sport improves? I don't know, but I do think that there will be different skill levels and different skill sets. As in football, you have lots of baseball players and basketball players that they're looking for uh, because the basketball players have certain ways of boxing out a person to catch a ball. And baseball players can throw the ball a certain way. So they're multi-dimensional players. So I, I just think that sports will always adjust and adapt. Uh, and it may not always be the same. I think that there will be improvements, but in some ways it will be not your father's sport. Yeah, a Mexican, like, you know, different era of wrestling, Mexican, you get yeah. an era of just completely different hockey. Now, the wrestling's getting close to doing something that no one thought was ever possible. Right. In a different era as well, so. Exactly. Yeah. Just wondering, could you not get an Edmonton oiler uh, a pennant to hang up there? Uh, we didn't want heresy here. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted some Canadian representation, but you know, we had the, that's why the, the uh, Canadian battles. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty sad. I was, I was trying to find a hockey stick on the property, couldn't find one because I don't play hockey, never have. Uh, I only learned how to skate. Uh, on ice with Liz and Julia, and they went on a Christmas special, and they were going to go skating on the ice, and I was like, I just know that I'm too old to go skating on the ice and learning at this age. But there was an African guy with his family that came in, and uh, in typical African fashion, he's like, um, if my children can learn to ice skate, so can I! <laughs> So can I. And I got out there and I'm on my little walker <laughs> with the tennis balls. And uh, and the four or five-year-olds were like flying past me. But, you know, I did learn how to ice skate, but I would never want to hold a stick at the same time. Uh, but we don't have a hockey stick here. I'm so sorry. But I did get to see Connor McDavid in person at a Preds Predators game. So that was a highlight. But you know, one of the things that, that, that you know that kind of bothers me. I'm a big fan of junior hockey. I've got season tickets to the Royals, you know. And uh, but then you read some of the stories of things that you know the whole dressing room mentality, where it seems to go to the absolute lowest common denominator. And I think it's got to be pretty hard for a, a Christian kid or even many non-Christian kids, you know, to. To, to, to navigate through all of that. You know, it's, some of the things they do are just absolutely horrendous, gut-wrenching, you know, and you know, where does that come from? You're talking about sort of the locker room mentality? Yeah. Yeah, um, and I mean, 
it's one of the things Clark and I were talking about, and I don't know if this is the case uh, with, with the junior team you're talking about, but we're noticing uh, like in colleges and in, in pro and in even um, junior hockey that a lot of teams are starting to get chaplains. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the one of the things they're realizing is like how much well, for example, there's people displaced, you know, junior hockey, these boys are away from their, their parents and so on and so forth. Yeah. And it's at a really uh, influential age. And I'm hearing some, some good stories about the influence some of these chaplains are having and how some of the struggles that you're having and the lack of confidence and stuff and the, the struggles you're having as an athlete kind of forces some people to to go and seek this help. So there's, I'm hoping there's there's a balance to that. But yeah, I think, you know, you get a group of anybody together, but you get some athletes together, there can be some bad behavior. We can talk about be another conversation. Well, you know, day, if but, I can add to that, or were you going to add to that? Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, actually a guy who goes to my church is the chaplain for the Royals. And mm -hmm. um, and he's, he's talked about, Eric, yeah, so he's, he's talked about some of the conversations he's had with some of the kids on that hockey team. Mm -hmm and uh, just like how hungry they actually are to have um, spiritual input and conversations about like, you know, learning, learning life skills and virtues and these kind of things mm -hmm. because there's been such an absence of that in their life. So it, it, it's really encouraging actually, like you say. Yeah, and there's, and there's a lot about, there's, there's um, organizations like Athletes in Action and Fellowship of Christian Athletes and so on. Because of the openness and the collegiality, I keep using that word, but there's a, there's a there's a esprit de corps that you get on a team. And I also think that you get a lot of ups and downs. And I just think that perhaps that relationship develops with the coach or develops with the chaplain because it's it's more of a personal than just, you know, you, you got a class for 45 minutes with your teacher, although I think there's a role with that. There's this after the, after the practice, um, you know, just time on the bus and so on. There's just a lot of time spent there that I think opens up young athletes for influence, you know, in terms of just as a role model, never mind just even as a Christian role model. Hopefully that, you know, will start to be uh, evident. I hope so, because you have these uh, 15, six, well, not very many 15-year-olds, but but 16-year-olds, but and some 15-year-olds, you know, that lead their families, they're in another city entirely, you know, and they have a billet, and you know, hope the billet are great people. Then right. you hope you have the coach that, that is able to maintain, you know, a certain <laughs> reasonable level of, Discipline. The decency, you know, yeah. you know, about things. For sure. Yeah. But I think sure like the idea of had the team having a chaplain. I didn't know the Royals had one. Yeah, how did they get a Christian? Like I think they would want to do this. <laughs> it's, it's quite a it's quite a the, the culture. The culture of professional sport and and even college sport like football and basketball, there's a chaplain culture there. Like it's been pre established. And it, it sort of cuts across some of the things you see at secularized secular schools, yeah. uh, which is kind of neat. And so far, that's continued to be a thing. I was just going to say, if you're going to be a pro athlete, you know, and and, and be sort of a, an out there Christian, you, you've, got, you've got to sort of watch how you behave. Because I remember Ryan Walters, who, who played for the Montreal Canadiens and the Canucks for a while. But, you know, that he uh, was interviewed one time, and he was a rather outspoken Christian. And I guess he took a whole large church group and everything to one of the Canadians games, and he got in three fights that night. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to add, you know, that um, uh, Trump got in trouble, you know, when he was 
talking in a certain way at the Hollywood Reporter, and he said that it was just locker room talk. Yeah, uh, this isn't about Trump. Um, I'm just bringing him up as a very, very visible example. But uh, people are like, well, is that actually how locker rooms talk? Because there are, you know, you, you, you hear these kind of things, but what he said, is it truly locker room talk? And so they interviewed a lot of professional athletes. And they said, you know, even in the locker room athlete, they would not consider that locker room talk. But they said that there's always a content, there's always a group that would talk that way. But it wouldn't be the locker room itself. It would always be a couple of people that may talk like that, but in the corner. And that there is actually quite a diversity in the locker room itself, as you would find anywhere, of the type of people. And and like you were talking about chaplaincy and uh, and for all the worst of Tom Brady, the one thing that makes him a great player is that he really wants to work with people who are struggling. So if they get a player that's really not doing well, who has had moral issues, behavioral issues, brings them in and sets them right beside Tom Brady in order to help them. Because I think that what they find is that chaplaincy and good behavior actually gives cohesion to teams uh, rather than all being Neanderthals or, you know, or the lowest brow. I think that it happens, but it is more on the the sidelines than something that is the main. Yeah, sport has a way of humbling us. It really does. And I think when you're humbled, sometimes you're more coachable. That's the way I see it. It's certainly been the case for me. Andrea, oh, oh I've yeah. heard though that at the, I've heard though that at like the, the level of, of teenagers, pre, you know, pre-teens, teenagers, like even like the baseball, leagues around here are really like foul like the kids are mm. not listening to the coaches mm. swearing like super disrespectful and yeah like that's kind of the culture i don't know if that's itself. sports fault though it seems more like a cultural issue yeah yeah but i'm saying like yeah so at that age i guess it just depends what so age well, just piggybacking on to what um um Julia said, I have noticed a difference in, I've, I've coached some awesome people, but I've, I've talked to a lot of coaches and I've experienced it as well, that, that there's a difference right now. I'm talking to people who are coaching in the coaching world and the type of things that you have to deal with. It used to be, yeah, there's an entitlement perhaps, you know, you got, because of, I think because of social media, you got like three seconds to make your point and mm -hmm. get the attention and then otherwise you're, you know, you're going down that that slippery slope. Um, I mean, not to not criticizing anybody I've coached. I'm just saying it is a common thing I'm hearing from teachers and coaches that that the world they operate in is different. And it used to be that the coach was the boss, and you selected your team, and and so on and so forth. But now there's there's a recourse you have to go through, even if you treat your athletes with respect, and you're known to do that. There's still this process. Um, and I feel like in some regard, the authority of the coach has been threatened, which, I mean, if the coach is not setting the tone in a good, positive way, maybe that's a good thing. But on the other hand, um, I don't think it's necessarily positive in terms of what the type of thing you're talking about, to be able to set the, the culture and to be able to hold people and discipline people and um, not be called on the carpet for that. Because if you want to be set the culture, you might have to make some hard decisions. 
Because they've never, they've never been disciplined at home. And, and that's the other thing is if you, if you're sort of not used to being told, I need to, you need to be better at something, and all of a sudden somebody's telling you you're not the best. Because with, with as you get higher up the chain, uh, you know, you're getting people who've been stars, and now you got to put them together, and make a team out of it, mm -hmm. and you haven't been told that you need to get better. That can be a really hard thing to hear. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily a good thing. I don't know, Sarah, if you agree with me, but that's... Um, I just want to take... Andrea, did you have something you wanted to add to this? Um, no, not really. Okay, I'll just... Maybe I'll, maybe I'll take Kyle's question, then come back to Andrea. Yeah. Because I think Kyle had something to add. It was 100% on a follow-up, just that like, I think it's really good that you talked about just um, the character building and the team and the structure and all that stuff, especially at, um, you know, like growing up in high school, before that middle school age, even in elementary school, and the kind of person that it creates, I mean, it doesn't matter what sport, but just like competition, teamwork, um, you know, striving for goals over a long, a long period of time. And just in my own life, seeing people that were actively involved in no matter what sport it was, like where they're at and kids that, you know, I would say could fall through the cracks easier mm -hmm. that aren't involved in that. Yeah. And um, the life skills that you get from being involved in sports, I think is a really benefit, beneficial thing. And um, it just—it's a yeah, I, I the, kind of what you're talking about, but about even like um, pregnancy or any of that stuff. It just—it mm -hmm. provides that structure, and um, it's like a microcosm, like you said, of life. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's really good for uh, development, human development in general. Just, mm -hmm. you know, it's a maturity. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's you know, sport builds called character, mm -hmm. which it can to a certain extent, obviously. I've also heard it said, I think John Wooden maybe said this, that it also reveals character. Mm -hmm. um, so you can see some of that too, which is why I think if you have somebody that's in a position of leadership or whatever, you, you hope that, you know, you got to be backed in order to be able to make those tough discipline things that have to happen mm -hmm. to allow that pruning to, to take place because we all need to be pruned, don't we? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have people taking advantage of that, not doing it in a positive way, but I think if there's a trust to the leadership that kids sometimes need that and I think it's lacking at times. Good adult role models and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. for sure. But you don't have parents that do that sometimes. Yeah. Andrea, what were you going to um, say? It's, a, it's more of a question, Donna. So, uh, when you first started playing, you would be, well, I think you're younger than I am, but, um, you know, you, somebody would be first, second, or third, and, or the team, someone would always be coming first, and whereas now, and I don't know how many years this has been going on for, but everybody gets a ribbon right. for participating. In your opinion, um, have you noticed a change in players' attitudes between when you first were starting out playing to later on with your coaching and your teaching and your coaching younger players. Do you think that has any effect on, on the kids, well, on the um, adults that you were coaching? No, I know already they're at a, at a higher level. What's your opinion on that? On um, if I've noticed a difference over the years in terms of like the impact of people uh, getting a participation ribbon. Yeah. And, and yes, absolutely. Because I think, first of all, it's, it, there's, it's a fallacy, in my opinion, that um, the kids don't know what the score is. Like, they, they, you've gone through this whole thing of, we're not going to keep score. We don't want anybody to feel bad. Kids know the score. Coaches might not, but trust me, the kids know the score. 
so that's just kind of an inbuilt thing with with sport and i think um whew, yeah um I personally struggle with that whole everybody gets a particip- everybody gets a ribbon because I don't think it, I think it sets kids up for disappointment and failure and frustration because like that's not that's not life. I mean, think about it like trust me, um, I struggle in you know, math. You're talking about math. Like I might have to work pretty hard to get a B in math, and somebody else works really you know doesn't have to put a lot of effort in and they get their A. But we're not all going to get an A in math. And so why are we all going to get an A in whatever, um, music, um, sport? You know, I think, I think it's part of life is to learn how to deal with this is my strength. Maybe I'm not so strong here, but I can find a way to enjoy this. Um, but to be able to, to handle some disappointments before you actually get out of the real world is a positive thing. I think it's an important thing. And I think it develops a level of humility that you need in order to be able to be teachable and coachable and hopefully be successful. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my personal. Are they still doing that? I mean, my kids have been out of school for a long time, but are they still doing that now with everybody gets a ribbon or everybody's recognized? No, but, but as you, and we could get into a whole different conversation on this, um, up the, 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 the whole. So I, I, I used to send a letter out to my, my parents and say, here's the, you know, here's the expectations. And I had a really awesome set of people really good set of people like I always felt pretty supported and really blessed with the parents that I had but I do think there's a, a thing out there where the kids have, I've seen kids being put under a lot of pressure by parents the expectations of the parents and everything and uh, there's a, a helicopter you, you guys all know the term helicopter parents and whatnot and I think that translates into you go to a sporting event you see these parents sometimes it's getting some of the negative aspect um, where they can be over the top and, and, you know, the whole idea, I heard someone say as a parent, what you should be asking kids after a game is a, did you have fun? And B, where, where do you want to stop and get something to eat? You know, you don't, you don't want to be going into like, Oh geez, you know, your defense was terrible. Um, you know, you, you didn't have your stick on the ground. Um, you didn't get that, you, you know, you were, you were slow reacting to this. You're slow reacting to that as a coach. That's a nightmare. When you've got people from external forces trying to influence your kids, and it just puts a lot of pressure, takes away from the the fun of that that those people, and I think that is a problem. And it doesn't just stop at sport because spent you know I was at a, a school that was a well, considered to be like you know certainly one I'd say one of the top schools in, in the U.S. and maybe even like the world, and I was told that. One of the Wall Street firms, um, who, who was, was being run by a Cornell alum, told their athletic director that um, they had to start a department for, for the parents of the, of the, the new mm. hires. So these are college grads coming out of an Ivy League school, but the parents had a big influence and they needed to be able to educate the parents. So they actually had a little place mm. in the firm, and they're Wall Street guys, um, they're girls, um, to kind of deal with that. And I think that translates to sport. I think it translates to dance. It translates to all of these different areas of society where kids are not being given the freedom to, 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 to stand on their own merit and learn and enjoy the experience for themselves. I'm a parent, so I can say that, right? Uh, just so that you're not discouraged in math, that they say that there's three kinds of people in the world. Uh-huh. Those who can count and those who can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
do we have time for one last question? Yes. Uh, Sarah, you had two questions. Do you want to do you want to decide between those? <laughs> sure. Um, I asked them because I was trying to think what would uh, my friend Veronica ask if she were able to be here tonight, and um, um, and she she studied the transition from um, being an elite athlete uh, to into retirement. And then she also trans. Uh, then she also, when she did her PhD, studied what is the secret to coaching success. Right. And so, um, I, I have two questions. I don't know which one to ask, but um, two for one. That's fine. Two for one. Okay, so let's go two for one. Um, the first is, uh, coaches, you have many responsibilities, uh, more than we can all think about, but. Um, what role or responsibility do you believe the coach has to prepare the elite athlete for trans transition from the elite identity and performance level uh, to a life in retirement from elite sport? Good um, yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's the first question to th think about that one. And the second one is it, it sounded to me like your um, developing of a family atmosphere and creating a sense of belonging uh, was important to your coaching style and do you have anything that you could attribute your coaching success to? So two different questions. Okay. Yeah. So first one, um, elite sport to ordinary, elite life. Sport to ordinary life. Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, wow. PhD. I should, we should be getting to Veronica chatting about that. Um, <laughs> I, um, think you and, yeah. I, I think you and Vero should have a chat. I'll take a, I'll take a stab, <laughs> stab at it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, honestly, um, one of the keys, obviously, is that, and I, you know, I had to learn this the hard way myself, is to, we have to just keep moving. I mean, yeah. we don't, we're not going to compete at that level forever. That's one of the interesting things between, like, say, art and music and, um, you know, maybe literature. You, you're, you're, you may actually get more excellence as you get older, whereas an athlete kind of has a ceiling and, and maybe that you start to see a drop-off. But you can continue to be active for the rest of your life. So I think, I think that that you know, just the natural taking care of the body and the nutrition and the, um, you know, the being active and stretching and, and building in some of that as an athlete naturally can transition and just finding that that place to be an outlet. Like personally, I did not want to play field hockey after I was done competing at a high level because it drove me crazy. Um, if you're used to competing at a, at a high level, I think sometimes it's easier to find a sport that you're not sort of continually reminding yourself I'm not where I was. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, and so sometimes athletes, honestly, I feel like um, if there's a good physical education program in a school, they can do a really good job of, of, of building that into a person where it just kind of continues on as part of their active lifestyle. Um, I think sometimes athletes are, it can be an all or nothing thing. So I hope there's some things and I hope we encourage that for sure. I don't know if that answers your question, but just kind of every day, good habits, rest, nutrition, you know, on days off, we used to get our kids away from the campus and we would canoe, we would do things like that just to not be doing field hockey. No, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. So second part of your question was- Family environment and coaching. Yeah. Secret so, of coaching success. Right. So it's into of what? I'm sorry. The secret coaching. of coaching success. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so 
yeah, I don't think it's something you just put in a, a bottle. Um, like it's a, it's a no. magic thing. Honestly, I really believe that um, as a leader, whatever it is, whether it's a coach or a leader, a pastor, a teacher, um, a person that's the CEO of the company, whoever you are, you have to be who you are. Like we all have a different set of skills and a, and a different sort of strengths. And I think you have to be who you are. Because we could try to be something you're not. I think that people see through that. So I don't think that what's successful for one is necessarily going to be the successful or be that be the thing that's successful for another. I think authenticity and who you are is like super important. I think how you treat people is a common thing. And I, for me, I, I you know I'm sure that there's a lot of people. I you, you have to make some really hard decisions. You have to offend people. You. Not everybody gets to, to play the position they want. Not everybody gets to start. Not everybody even gets to be on the team. I've had to, you know, cut people. So not everybody is happy. But within your group that you have, that you identify as your group that you work with, I think it's all about, like, trust and respect and uh, creating a culture that, that the group will, will buy into and hopefully understanding at the end of the day it's a game. You know, we can make, yes, there's a lot of lessons about about sport in life, but it's a game. And if you lose, it hurts a lot. Like, it sometimes it takes me a couple of days to get over a game. Sometimes it takes it take me a week because there's so much poured into it. You just, to let it go, it's hard. But you start to realize the sun rises, the sun sets. It's still, you know, at the end of the day. And I think that's a good thing to remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, really appreciate all y'all coming uh on zoom uh donna thank you so much for uh letting us into your world and uh and speaking not only transparently authentically but also very helpfully insightfully with wisdom so i appreciate your time with us just want to say that publicly but also um, i thank you for helping us do this public event that you could participate in it and uh and lastly that liz is just that much closer <laughs> that uh that liz is a game of yards and inches i will say one thing once once a coach always a coach when donna the first week donna was here i heard somebody yelling you can tell that in the backyard yelling and you can samuel hear Julia, was right? running uh -huh. samuel was running around the house and i don't know what she was timing and she was but he, I could hear yelling from the other side of the field. We can't get Samuel to go outside the house, but Donna had him running laps and push-ups. We heard her yelling. Yeah. He was probably ready for raw egg. I'm just used chicks. to I'm just used to ordering people around. I gotta find someone to order around. But no, thanks, thanks for everyone, and thanks for for having me. It was a real honor. Yeah. Okay. Well, have a good night, and. Uh, and next Friday, Liz will be speaking on the topic of freedom, uh, all things freedom. So there will be no structure. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, but next week will be our final talk for the year, and then we'll start again in January. So you can join us for that next Friday at 7 o'clock. And hopefully one day we can all see each other face to face, um, body to body again. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Clark. Thanks, Clark. Thanks, Donna. Okay. Night. Night. Yeah.